Today's reading is Luke 16, 14 through 30. The Pharisees, who were money lovers, heard all this and sneered at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves before other people, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued by people is deeply offensive to God. Until John, there was only the law and the prophets. Since then, the good news of God's kingdom is preached and everyone is urged to enter it. It's easy for heaven and earth to pass away than for the smallest stroke of a pen in the law to drop out. Any man who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And a man who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a certain rich man who clothed himself in purple and fine linen and who feasted luxuriously every day. At his gate lay a certain poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. Lazarus longed to eat the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Instead, dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. While being tormented in the place of the dead, he looked up and saw Abraham at a distance with Lazarus at his side. He shouted, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm suffering in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received good things, whereas Lazarus received terrible things. Now Lazarus is being comforted, and you are in great pain. Moreover, a great crevasse has been fixed between us and you. Those who wish to cross from over here to you cannot. Neither can anyone cross from there to us. The rich man said, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers. He needs to warn them so that they don't come to this place of agony. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They must listen to them. The rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will change their hearts and lives. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. When I was a student in college, I began serving at the Homeless Rescue Mission in downtown Santa Cruz every Friday night. I would help prepare food with others before a chapel service, and then I would sit in a chapel with homeless men, they were mostly men, and we would sing hymns together. All of the pastors at the chapel were homeless themselves at one point, and they would preach a sermon calling these men to put their faith in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Afterward, I would go with others and we would serve food to these homeless men. 
This was all well and good, but the thing I looked forward to the most each week was sharing table fellowship with them, was sharing a meal with them, talking about our stories, talking about how the Lord Jesus worked in our lives. Because in that moment, it wasn't a homeless man and a college student sitting together. It was two brothers in the Lord. I don't know how many people were saved in the chapel, but around that table, I experienced the salvation of God. This morning, we heard a parable about a rich man and a poor man. I want to suggest that this is a story about the salvation of God. And to be honest, it's a challenging parable. (laughs) It's a challenging parable because it's hard for us to identify with the good guy. So I've been conflicted as I prepare the sermon. But if we are to live out of the gospel for the flourishing of all people, it's a parable that we need to hear and have conversation about. This summer, we're in a series. We're opening our ears afresh to the parables or the short stories that Jesus told. These are stories that awaken our imaginations, that make sense of the world for us, uh, that capture us with the truth. Soren Kierkegaard describes the truth as a snare or as a trap. He says, you cannot have the truth in such a way that you capture it but only in such a way that it captures you. This is exactly how the parable of the rich man and Lazarus works. I want to read the parable we heard this morning as a story about salvation. Often, we think about salvation as something that happens in the chapel. It's something that happens spiritually between an individual and God. But Luke gives us an image of salvation that is at once spiritual and earthly, at once horizontal and vertical. Salvation is reconciliation between God and humanity, and between humanity and humanity. Luke holds the two together in a way that we are typically unable to. And this parable helps us think about how mission and salvation and the kingdom of God might look here and now. When we read the parables of Jesus, we need to pay attention to who Jesus' audience is and why he is telling the parable. Go ahead and open up your Bible to Luke chapter 16, the 14th verse. The audience of the parable is the Pharisees, and Jesus is telling the parable in response to a controversy about salvation, about the kingdom of God, about who is in and out. At this point in the story, Jesus has been telling parables about the kingdom of God as a grand reversal of the status quo. The Pharisees have heard these parables, and Luke tells us their response. Look at Luke 16, 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money, heard all these things and ridiculed him. They sneered at him. They turned their nose up at him, the Greek says. They mocked him. And Luke suggests that they couldn't hear the words of Jesus because they were lovers of money, of riches, and of wealth. 
But, so before telling a parable in response to these Pharisees, Jesus tells them what is at stake. Nothing less than salvation. He says, and here I'm drawing from the Common English Bible, which I think renders the Greek more helpfully, in 1615, Jesus says, Until John there was only the law and the prophets. Since then, the good news has been preached. The good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone is urged to enter it. The scandal of the kingdom of God, the scandal of salvation that Jesus proclaims, is that it is for everyone. The kingdom of God, Jesus' salvation, is good news for the poor, the expendable, the blind, the lame, the dishonored, the homeless, the impure. And it is bad news for the rich, the rulers, the religious, the well-respected, the comfortable. They too are urged to enter the kingdom of God, but only through repentance from the things they so highly value. Remember, they are not indicted for having wealth, but for loving it, for using wealth to maintain their own high status in a community. Jesus calls out their love affair with wealth. He says, what is highly valued by people is deeply offensive to God. Salvation in Luke is a grand reversal. And we've seen this reversal throughout Luke's gospel. Think about Mary's song in Luke 1. When Mary praises God, her Savior, she understands God's salvation as a grand reversal. God has shown strength with his arm, she says. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. We see the same dynamic of salvation of God's work in the world as reversal when Jesus gives a programmatic statement about his gospel and mission in Luke 4. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He has sent me to proclaim the gospel to the poor. What a statement. The reason God sends Jesus into the world is to proclaim the gospel to the poor. And then he explains what that looks like. To proclaim freedom to prisoners and sight to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the jubilee year of the Lord. Salvation is Jesus' good news to the poor. A grand reversal where the poor, oppressed, and prisoner enter God's favor. Later in the Gospel of Luke, John the Baptist doubts that Jesus really is the Messiah. He expected the Messiah would restore the kingdom to Israel, that he would overthrow Rome. How does Jesus respond to John the Baptist's doubt? How does Jesus assure the Baptist that he is indeed the Messiah, that he is indeed establishing the kingdom of God? Jesus tells him that he is preaching the gospel to the poor. He says, go and tell John, the blind see, the lame walk, 
The lepers are purified. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. In sum, the poor have the gospel proclaimed to them. Then he says, with words that anticipate our passage, Blessed is anyone who is not offended by me. The Pharisees were offended at Jesus. They ridiculed him. They were offended that he preached the kingdom of God to the poor, that everyone was urged to enter the kingdom. And this is where history sheds light on the text. The very people that Jesus preached to were those who were excluded and marginalized in Israel. So, for example, no one could qualify to be a priest who was blind, lame, or leprous. Or another example, there was a sectarian community at a place called Qumran. We still have a lot of their documents. And they excluded people from their community who had leprosy, who were lame, who were blind, and who were deaf. And as that community looked forward to the last battle when the kingdom of God would be established, they excluded boys, women, the lame, the blind, and the impure. Do these people sound familiar? These are the very people that we see Jesus proclaiming the kingdom of God to in the Gospel of Luke. Everyone is urged to enter. The gospel is preached to the poor. On top of that, Jesus shares table fellowship with people the Pharisees considered sinners, such as tax collectors and prostitutes. And table fellowship was a significant act in the ancient world. To share a table with someone was to say, you are part of my family, you are my brother or my sister. Jesus preaches the kingdom of God and everyone is urged to enter it. The Pharisees, though, are offended at Jesus. They were lovers of money and wealth, and Jesus proclaims a gospel to the poor. In response to the Pharisees, Jesus tells a parable about the rich man and a poor man. The parable is about salvation. It's about who is included and who is excluded from the kingdom of God and why. The parable has three scenes. In the first scene, we see two men, and that's about all they have in common. One man is rich, and the other man is poor. The rich man is clothed in fine linen, completely extravagant, a a royal outfit. The poor man is clothed in sores that cover his body. The rich man has an extravagant feast every single day. The poor man is hungry. He longs to eat even crumbs that fall from the table of the rich man. The rich man lives in a gated compound. The poor man lives on the ground at his gate. We've met two men who differ in every way. The rich man has unimaginable riches, and the poor man has nothing. The rich man is at the upper echelon of society and keeps company only with those of his status. The poor man is the lowest of the low. Poor, leprous, lame, a social pariah, 
an expendable nobody. But the poor man has one thing in this parable that the rich man does not. He has a name. Lazarus. God helps. The rich man is nameless. Remember, Jesus is the one narrating the story. By giving the poor man a name, Jesus foreshadows the grand reversal of the kingdom of God. The poor have the good news preached to them. The rich are called to repentance. Everyone is urged to enter the kingdom. The second scene is brief. Both men die. The rich man dies and is buried. Lazarus dies and angels carry him to the bosom of Abraham or the side of Abraham. And that is a place where the Testament of Abraham tells us, it's another early Jewish document written around the time of Luke. The bosom of Abraham is a place where there is no trouble, nor grief, nor sighing, but peace and rejoicing in life unending. Death is the inevitable end of earthly life, but it is not the end. The third scene is set in Hades, in the afterlife. And some of you might wonder about Hades and what this text shows us about the afterlife. You might be disappointed. This is a parable. What Jesus is doing here is comparable to what people do when they talk about St. Peter at the heavenly gate. The point is not so much to accurately represent the afterlife as it is to make a point about who makes it into the kingdom of God, who is included and excluded and why. Here, Jesus is adopting a common understanding of the afterlife from Judaism. Hades was understood to be uh, the general abode of the dead, the place where the wicked and the righteous would go before final judgment. If we pay attention to the parable, we might be perplexed to see both the rich man and Lazarus are in Hades, only they're separated by a great chasm between them. The point of this parable is not to tell us about the afterlife, but to show the grand reversal that happens in the kingdom of God. Lazarus is comforted. The rich man is in torment. Lazarus is a child of Abraham and recognized to be such. The rich man only thinks he is. Lazarus is now included, and the rich man is excluded. The conversation that ensues between the rich man and Lazarus, excuse me, between the rich man and Abraham, explains this reversal. The rich man asks Abraham twice to send Lazarus to do something for him. And each time, Abraham explains why the rich man is where he is and why he will stay where he is. If you want to follow along, look at verse 24. The first time the rich man calls out, he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in these flames. Abraham says, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. I want to stop there for a moment because the Gospel of Luke has prepared us for this. Jesus has warned those who are rich 
that those who enjoy their riches for themselves in this life have already received their reward. We might recall the Beatitudes and the woes and their startling logic. Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are full now, because you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The fate of the rich man is the fate of one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. By contrast, Jesus says to the poor, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. It almost goes without saying that Jesus overturns conventional wisdom, both then and now. The rich man is woed. He is in torment. And Lazarus is now comforted. Abraham continues his response to the rich man in verse 26. Besides all this, he says, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. The boundaries are redrawn. What do I mean? When the rich man and Lazarus were alive, there was a boundary, the rich man's gate. And the gate represents the social distance between the rich man and Lazarus. There was the unspoken rule that you don't eat with people like Lazarus. Of course, uh, you are generous and compassionate to your friends and to your brothers and to your neighbors of the same social status, but to Lazarus? The thing is, during their lives, the gate was a permeable boundary. Nothing prevented the rich man from inviting Lazarus to feast at his table. In fact, the rich man knows Lazarus' name, as we see in the afterlife. He could have invited Lazarus to feast, even though Lazarus was poor and impure and undesirable and would have brought dishonor to him and couldn't have paid him back. But this is exactly what Jesus commends Earlier in Luke, he says, When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. But the rich man did not. What is the result? He now finds himself on the wrong side of a boundary, the great chasm that has been fixed between him and Abraham. And this boundary is not permeable. Not even the tip of Lazarus' finger can cross it. The rich man calls Abraham father, but finds he is excluded from Abraham's family. And Lazarus, who is excluded by the rich man in this life, becomes a child of Abraham. The rich man calls out a second time for, Lazarus to, uh, for Abraham to send Lazarus to do something for him. This time he's motivated by compassion for his own household. He says, uh, verse 27, Then I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. 
Notice that the rich man has compassion, but only to his brothers, to his household, uh, to his social equals. Lazarus is still a nobody to him, not a child of Abraham, but a slave to his beck and call. Even in torment, the rich man does not repent. Abraham says to him, Your brothers have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. The rich man says, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. They will change their hearts and their lives. Abraham says, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither would they be convinced if someone did rise from the dead. And with that, the parable abruptly ends. And yet it's left open-ended. Because in fact, in the Gospel of Luke, somebody did rise from the dead. And when Jesus rises from the dead in the Gospel of Luke, he reads Moses and the prophets to his disciples. And he shows them the purpose of God. Good news proclaimed to the poor. The question this raises to us is, how will we listen? So, what does it look like to listen to this story, to live in light of it? Uh, To be honest, I'm not quite sure. Actually, I've been quite conflicted about it as I've prepared this sermon. One thing we're trying to do this summer with the parables is to listen to them together. And a hope of mine is that what I can offer you right now will spur on conversation that we have around the table. Uh, So at best, I have a few ideas about how not to listen to this parable and a few questions that might inform our conversation as we we move on. First, uh, we can't think of the terms rich and poor as economic terms only. They are also social terms. There are social riches and social poverty. That is, rich and poor both entail social commitments and expectations. Remember that this parable has been told to Pharisees who Luke calls lovers of money. So what makes the rich the rich in the Gospel of Luke? The problem is not that they have money, but they love money. And then we might ask, what does it look like to love money? In Luke, the rich man is a person who uses money for himself for the pursuit of his own status, security, and comfort. The rich man is a person who uses money to maintain a social status, to entertain friends and neighbors who are his social equals. The rich man uses money to distance himself from his poor neighbors. And the rich man, in the Gospel of Luke, must be saved from his riches through repentance or else undergo judgment. The poor person is not only economically impoverished, but also socially impoverished. Uh, Society continually reminds the poor person that he or she doesn't belong. The poor person is the one who isn't invited to the table, so to speak. And the poor person is the one who, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus calls blessed. In Luke, a person with riches can be considered poor because of their social poverty. 
and their receptiveness to the word of Jesus. A person without riches can be considered rich because they are lovers of money, even if they are very religious, like the Pharisees. Second, uh, we can't listen to this parable and think that Lazarus is somebody other than our neighbor. The poverty of Lazarus is extreme, both economically and socially, and the parable raises the same question as the parable of the Good Samaritan does. Who will you be a neighbor to? And this parable tells us that we need to be a neighbor to the neighbor at our gate, to the Lazarus who is around us. That is, it's not enough to keep company with people who are just like us. We need to recognize and learn to recognize the social, economic, and racial boundaries that divide us from our neighbors. And we are compelled by the gospel to cross them. There are uh, beautiful stories of this happening at Grace, and there's many that I could tell. I think of uh, Pat Ferguson, who has spent every Thursday evening uh, for years simply uh, with homeless people in downtown Long Beach. Or I think of the many families at Grace who have undertaken to foster or adopt children in very fragile circumstances. But this text also raises questions for us. How might we do so more? What are the boundaries that distance us from the neighbor at our gate? How do we actually uh, actively maintain these boundaries? And how do we learn to cross them? So we might think about our daily and weekly rhythms, the places we spend money and time, the kinds of people that we're typically willing to engage with and the kinds of people we're very uncomfortable with. We might also ask, in what unique ways our vocations position us to love the neighbor at our gate? So that our vo- in, in our vocations, we can actually advance and extend the mission of God in the world. As you think and pray about the neighbor at your gate, those people you tend to overlook or don't seem to have much to offer you or people you wouldn't normally engage with, ask God how he might have you bring the life of Jesus to them how your life and words might proclaim the gospel to the poor. Third, we can't listen to this parable and think that Lazarus is someone other than ourselves. I found this picture online, and I will talk about it in a moment. Christian maturity finds Lazarus not only in our neighbor, but also in our mirror This keeps us from being patronizing as we seek to love our neighbor. It keeps us from distancing ourselves even as we move towards someone to love them. And this is where the Latin American church uh, might instruct us in faithfulness to Jesus. New Testament scholar Justo Gonzalez talks about how Lazarus in Latin America has become San Lazaro, Saint Lazarus, a saint who conveys hope to the poor, uh, to the marginalized, to those who don't belong, to those estranged from their families, uh, to those oppressed by unjust laws. Here is a picture of a man, the neighbor at our gate, holding a statue of St. Lazarus, and these uh, proliferate in Latin America, according to Justo Gonzalez. So you see Lazarus there, covered with sores, scantily clothed, with dogs around him, 
and the man holding him, uh, the statue, is Lazarus, a brother in the Lord who has received the gospel to the poor. This parable presses us to think of ourselves as a community, not only for the poor, but as a community of the poor. To live as people who know our wounds, our brokenness, our own poverty, and who find the salvation of God come to us as good news for the poor. Fourth, and this is a challenging one, we can't listen to this parable as though the rich man is someone other than ourselves. At the very least, we need to seriously entertain the idea that our relationship to wealth is distorted, that our concern for our own social standing outpaces our concern for justice and for the poor, and that we use wealth as a way to distance ourselves from our poorer neighbors who happen to live in neighborhoods with high crime rates, high drug use, high pollution, and no parking. I'm not suggesting that any one of us has set out to become the rich man. I am suggesting that the social location where many of us find ourselves pressures us to become the rich man. Fifth, and closely related, we can't listen to this parable without repentance. The parable ends with Abraham's call for the brothers of the rich man to repent. And the word for repentance in Greek is metanaeo. It means a change of mind and heart. Uh, we often tend to think about repentance as something that, that brings guilt and shame on you. And often when we talk about money, uh, there's this sort of lingering sense of guilt that comes from our privilege. Uh, but I've found more and more that repentance is an intensely liberating and redemptive practice. Through repentance, we enter the world as it really is, the strange world of the gospel where it is the poor who are blessed. And then we're freed to think and to live differently, more truly, more beautifully, more faithfully. In this case, we might repent from the thought that the goal of human life is the accumulation of possessions, that the measure of success is a person's net worth, that the highest goods we can attain are safety, security, and comfort. And we might believe the flip side of repentance is always belief, that the world is abundant so we can live open-handedly, that true riches, life, and joy are found in Jesus Christ so we can live sacrificially, and that this new society we are part of, the church, it's called, is a community of brothers and sisters saved by the expansive grace of God. We are all included as full-fledged members of the family of God. We are all children of Abraham. I want to tell a story about the time I met Lazarus. It was when I was in college. Every so often, me and another student would go downtown and treat somebody to lunch, a person that we didn't know who lived on the street. One day, we walked past a man sitting on the ground. He had tattoos, 
not only on his arms and neck, but also on his face. Uh, my friend and I looked at each other rather uneasily, and we felt strangely drawn that this is the person we should invite to lunch. We asked him to join us for lunch, and we went to a restaurant, and we sat down together at a table. When he sat down and smiled at us, we noticed that all of his teeth were sharpened to points. And we noticed that some of his tattoos were pentagrams and images of demons. What did we get ourselves into? <laughs> but we began a conversation, and it's one that I'll never forget. He told us his name was Vic Burnett. He had been a heroin addict. He had contracted HIV-AIDS. And he had been on his deathbed when his brother, who was a pastor, came and prayed for him. He was healed. The doctors were baffled. He had since come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he shared with us his poetry. I still have it. Vic Burnett wrote, My child, I know thy sorrows, thine every grief I share. I know how thou art tested, and what is more, I care. Think not I am indifferent to what affecteth thee. Thy weal and woe are matters of deep concern to me. But child, I have a purpose in all that I allow. I ask thee then to trust me, though all seems dark just now. In that moment, we found that this homeless stranger, who appeared to us so threatening at the outset, was in fact our brother. That day, we experienced the salvation of God. Thanks be to God.